This episode of Indie Film Weekly is sponsored by Musicbed. Musicbed believes everyone should have access to great music in their projects, regardless of their budget or workflow. That's why they just announced their all-new membership program, the first music licensing subscription of its kind, releasing this summer. Membership is here to make their world-class roster of artists and composers available for all of your projects. Membership will give you unlimited access to a majority of Musicbed's artists, all at a flat monthly or yearly rate based on the types of films you make. And if you still want single-use licenses, they're not going anywhere. Membership is just a new option to make music licensing work better for your workflow. Be one of the first to learn more at musicbed.com slash membership. And don't forget, you can get 20% off your next on-site license with coupon code IndieFilmWeekly20. That's IndieFilmWeekly and the number 20. Welcome to Indie Film Weekly, a no-film school podcast. I'm Liz Nord. I'm Eric Lures. And I'm John Fusco. It's May 3rd, 2018, and on this week's show, the most important industry events that you might never have heard of, why camera manufacturer Red is partnering with Facebook, and as always, news you can use about new gear, upcoming deadlines, indie film releases, and Ask No Film School. Everybody, welcome to this week's show from downtown Brooklyn, New York. As always, we're here to bring you everything you might have missed while you were busy making films. And part of being in downtown Brooklyn, New York, is that there's constant construction around us. Like today, I don't know if you guys can hear it, but we can hear a pretty loud, rumbly something going on outside. So if you hear that, we're going to work on our EQ, but we do apologize in advance. The show is worth a listen Anyway, it's going to be awesome. We're recording in a submarine down deep in the ocean right now. I'm actually just really hungry, and it's my stomach. Oh, I, God. Yeah. Um, so I want to kick off the show with a big thank you to everyone who came out to our Tribeca Filmmaker Happy Hour last week. Um, also, big thanks to Kit Split and DCTV, who were our co-hosts, and to David Mariah, our photographer, and Randy, my boo, Randall Alasulto, who set up our mobile photo studio for a cool photo booth. It was so much fun to meet so many of you. A lot of folks came up and said hey and said that you listen to the show and that you get a lot out of it. And, you know, that means the world to us because we're, we're kind of, you know, always here working away and don't necessarily get that FaceTime with you guys. So... Thanks, everybody. It was super fun. Apparently, someone thanked you for wrangling me in on the podcast. Like, I, I say yeah. totally inappropriate things on here or something. Is that what happened? I, that did happen, I, apparently. Eric was there. No, were you right there? I mean, everybody was coming up to Liz at this party saying, what a great job she does on the podcast. You guys seem mad about it. Was it. Like, Isn't that great? It was like at least five people that were coming up <laughs> in succession to, just for Liz specifically. And it was like, no, okay. No, they said you all. But it's true. One gentleman did say, like, you do a really good job of managing John and his his sour attitude. That's bullshit, sir. I have to say, that's <laughs> And you can <gasps> What? <laughs> Just kidding. All right. We lost, we lost that viewer, uh, listener. But... I think that, that, but don't you think I do a good job, generally speaking? Wow. <laughs> Cricket. You can really hear the uh, background noise there. Oh, yeah. my yeah, yeah, yeah. God. I hope we're going to cut oh, this part. There you go. It's gone. Jeez. <laughs> anyway, thanks to everyone but John for all your support. And uh, here we go. 
So one of the main reasons this show exists is to keep you all informed about things that might affect your filmmaking, but that you may not be sort of paying attention to because you're actually making films. And part of that is also cluing you into things that happen in the greater industry that you wouldn't even necessarily know about at all, but that do ultimately shape the media landscape and thereby likely have some bearing on your media making life. Two of those things have happened in the last couple weeks, CinemaCon and the New Fronts. So we'll start with CinemaCon. So if you're not aware of CinemaCon, it's a convention exhibition in Las Vegas that brings movie studios and cinema owners and corporations together uh, to accomplish a few things. They debut trailers and new footage for upcoming releases, discuss new ways to improve and strengthen the occasionally fledgling theatrical experience, and they hype up the debut of new technology that will supposedly grow the business moving forward. Regarding new movies, the big news came via debuting footage of M. Night Shyamalan's Glass, which is a title for a movie. Uh, he didn't bring his own. Which is a sequel to Unbreakable and Split, Damien Chazelle's First Man, the opening scene of Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom, and the debut trailer for David Gordon Green's Halloween that has not debuted online yet but has been written and detailed about obsessively online. Uh, also debuting from the company known as Movio at CinemaCon was something called Audience Insights. It's a database that is described as follows. Imagine a world where you not only know an individual's most preferred movie choice, but also how likely they are to see it. Movio's second insights-driven module, Audience Insights, allows any cinema marketer to do just that. With the introduction of Movio's proprietary propensity algorithm, Audience Insights is set to revolutionize the way cinema marketers engage with moviegoers. Exhibitors will be able to visualize the distribution of members for each movie screening to focus campaign tactics and balance marketing efforts for the coming week based on the likely audience size for movies now showing and coming soon. Identify the best content to feature in emails and newsletters by easily analyzing the demand for each movie showing in circuit, and modify incentives by calibrating offers to each individual's likelihood of seeing a movie. Now, it kind of feels a little bit like a dating app, the way they made the video. It like pairs users with their favorite movies and the likelihood that they will actually go see it and how they can be reached, targeted for advertising purposes. Um, it'll be like, here, meet Brenda. She saw A Quiet Place. And she would like to see Isle of Dogs. Well, Daniel also saw A Quiet Place and has similar movie interests, so let's market Isle of Dogs to him as well. And I'm sure that this is uh, foolproof, but it, it definitely seems a little uh, big right now. Uh, maybe it can happen. I, what if Daniel and I don't even know the woman's name I made up. Did you say Mary? Mary, Christina. Uh, well, you know, what if they don't have similar tastes? And then it's like, not only can we identify the movie that they're interested in, we can tell you the likely percentage that they are to actually go to the movie. I, I don't know. Uh, you know, we'll see. We'll, well see. I think it's interesting to hear about um, these days having a big convention for movie movie distrib not not movie distributors movie like showers exhibitors exhibitors yeah. thank you because they are like like they're freaking out and of course one of the reasons is because of movie pass which also then had its whole flurry of news you know it was probably discussed every day all the time at CinemaCon, like sort of under the radar yeah. and then and then it's been all over the news too again Exactly. So MoviePass has been going through so many changes recently, uh, and it's been a rather odd few days. 
last week, as CinemaCon was taking place, word got around that changes were coming for MoviePass. Uh, so let me see if I got all these right. New members would not be allowed to see the same movie twice. New members would only be able to see four movies a month. And you would have to take a photo of your ticket sub every time you use the MoviePass card and provide camera access to the company to verify the film, etc. This was somewhat of a mess in the rollout. And then just a few hours ago, actually, uh, Variety reported that MoviePass is going back to offering one movie a day monthly plans. Uh, the publication reports, MoviePass will once again allow customers to sign up for its popular movie a day monthly subscription package after briefly taking the offering off of its website. Since April 13th, MoviePass has only been offering a promotional $29.95 three-month plan. That only allowed the users the freedom to see four movies a month, but it threw in a free trial of iHeartRadio's all-access on-demand streaming package. I don't, you know, maybe people want that. <laughs> maybe. The move set off alarm bells that MoviePass might be running out of money, fears that were amplified after an independent auditor publicly raised questions about the service's ability to continue operating. So this, this is interesting. We never planned to abandon the flagship product that everybody loves, said MoviePass CEO Mitch Lowe in an interview. Anytime we've done a promotional package, we've taken the monthly plan off our site. So they say that that seems to be a different position than the one Lowe espoused last week with an interview with The Hollywood Reporter where he said he didn't know if MoviePass would go back to offering a movie-a-day program. Uh, so, you know, he said he didn't want to limit interest in the iHeartRadio promotional package by tipping his hand. So he has said that they weren't sure if the one movie a day was going to come back. Now he's saying that was always a part of the plan. They just removed it for this iHeartRadio promotion. And they're coming out with new announcements that negate the old ones pretty much every week now. <laughs> well, it sounds like for those of you listening, you should uh, definitely check out all the movies that we're going to talk about later in our theatrical section this weekend, because who knows if your movie pass is going to work You're next right. weekend. And we will never mention four movies on the podcast. We'll only mention two or three so that you can go to each one with your movie pass card. But only once. But only once. Only And take that photo of the stub. <laughs> was that was that a uh, $30 for all four months, or was that $30 a month? That wasn't thirty dollars a month for it was thirty thirty dollars for four month period, right? It so was, you're getting like twelve movies for forty bucks essentially. Yeah, thirty dollar three month plan. Thirty bucks. Thirty bucks. Yeah, that's not still not a bad deal. It's still <laughs> a great deal. It's just so confusing. Like we don't know which of these things apply to the memberships we already have. I mean, they're they're not doing a very good job of you know communicating with their customer base. I don't know. I, I didn't even know I got an iHeartRadio subscription. Well, I don't think you did. Oh, I didn't get it because I already was a member. Right. Uh, but it's okay because you hate radio. Amen. Yeah. Um, you sure got a face for it, though. Oh, oh. oh boy. <laughs> so almost on the opposite end of the industry scale from CinemaCon are the New Front presentations, which are a week's worth of events sponsored by the Interactive Advertising Bureau, which is a thing, where all big digital platforms make presentations to media buyers to try to get them to buy advertising against the new content coming out. And there's serious money there. E-marketers forecast issued in late March reported that total digital ad spending is projected to climb 18.7% to $107.3 billion in the U.S. this year. And uh, that's happening at the same time that TV ad spending is expected to go down. 
So even though it's a very specific and industry insidery event, not designed for the public per se, it's also a great place for those of us making content to see what the various platforms and media companies are programming and showcasing. The presentation started on Sunday and they go until tomorrow, and some trends definitely started to emerge already over the first couple days. For one, given the statistics, it's not surprising that some of the more traditional media companies like Viacom and Disney have joined the newer companies like Hulu and Vice at the new fronts this year. Viacom is formally introducing its digital studios there, which already has 300 employees and has been developing shows for Facebook, Snapchat, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. And even stalwart The New York Times is in on the game, presenting the fact that it will be adapting its top-rated podcast, The Daily, into a TV show and is developing a couple other shows. Twitter, or what I like to call the anti-New York Times, is also launching original video content. Hulu announced that it has surpassed 20 million U.S. subscribers and will therefore be continuing to create original content, including a partnership with DreamWorks to produce stuff for children, which seems like a direct response to the upcoming Disney streaming service that we've talked about on the show. So, you know, this is a good time to announce that we're turning this podcast into a TV show. For children. <laughs> yeah. With, uh, with Obviously, I won't be on it because I get a little edgy for yeah. that. No, we'll keep you in line. For yeah, this don't one. worry. Yeah. I do an excellent job yeah. of keeping you in check. Sure. Yeah. Um, I like the idea of an animated show of us. Of us? Really? Be adorable. Yeah. We, we do the voices? Well, yeah, that's uh, the whole okay. thing. Okay, you're yeah. right. You're sorry. <laughs> anyway, there's lots and lots of announcements coming out of the new front. So if you are making shows or looking to develop content or even promote your movies via ancillary content, it's worth doing a Google search for new fronts to see who's doing what this coming year. And if there might be an outlet that would finance and or distribute your idea that you had never even considered before. The biggest takeaway I got from your whole segment right there is that you call Twitter the anti-New York Times. Explain yourself. <laughs> what does that mean? Because anything can go up on Twitter unvetted. And people, you know, many people give it the same factual weight as they would something that was researched in depth by journalists. Sounds like IndieWire. Oh! You can't hold me back today. What a banger. <laughs> so, now on to my least favorite kind of story. Not just an obituary, but one for a brave fallen journalist. Shah Marai was killed in a bombing in Afghanistan on Monday that was specifically targeting journalists who were rushing to the scene of another suicide bombing. Marai was the chief photographer in Kabul for Agence France Presse, which is the third largest newswire in the world after the Associated Press and Reuters. Marai was one of nine journalists killed in the attack, but I mention him specifically because, true to the nature of our community, the 41-year-old father of six children was a self-taught photographer. He also wrote eloquently about his work. I encourage you to Google an amazing essay he wrote that's been circulating called When Hope is Gone about his time in Afghanistan. To give you a taste, here's a small excerpt. I began working as a photographer for AFP under the Taliban in 1998. They hated journalists, so I was always very discreet. I took pictures with a small camera that I hid in a scarf wrapped around my hand. The Taliban restrictions made it extremely difficult to work. They forbid the photographing of all living things, for example, be they men or animals. One day, I was taking pictures of a line outside a bakery. Some Taliban approached me. What are you doing? They demanded. Nothing, I answered. I'm taking pictures of the bread. Luckily, this was in the age before digital cameras, so they couldn't check to make sure I was telling the truth. Rest in peace, Shah Marai and the other journalists killed in the blast, and thank you for your work. And now for your latest tech and gear news from Charles Hayne. Hey, this is Charles Hayne here with Gear News. 
Uh, thank you very much for the intro. So, biggest gear news of the week was actually announced at Facebook's F8 conference, which is sort of their conference for developers and people building stuff for the platform. And it was the announcement that Red and Facebook are teaming up together to build a capture device for immersive VR content. So this is exciting for a whole bunch of reasons. First off, Facebook a couple years ago announced their sort of prototype device that they had put out there as a like, hey guys, this is what you could do, but nobody really took off with that. I mean, people are building 3D stereo rigs, but I haven't seen a lot of like in the Facebook style. So by partnering with a technology company, by partnering with a company that makes cameras, Facebook's going to be able to have input on what it is, and Red's going to have an opportunity to have a huge audience right off the bat for all the people who have Oculus Rifts or the new and only $200 Oculus Go, which I kind of think is finally going to be the thing that makes VR a huge deal. Now, what's really interesting about this is not thinking about this in terms of Red's single sensors. Yes, the single sensor is what Red is known for. You've got, you know, the Helium and the Dragon and the, uh, ooh, what was the one that just went to space? The Gemini. So there's all sorts of crazy, cool single sensor cameras. But Red is also about to release the Hydrogen, which is their new holographic smartphone. So it'll have a holographic display, and it'll have a method for capturing holographic, what they're calling four-view images, which are going to have some depth along with the photo capture. So... What we guess here at No Film School is that you're actually going to see something that's like 12 hydrogens strapped together to create an immersive video thing that has like the beauty you associate with red imagery, the high dynamic range, the really nice pixels, but also some of the depth information you can only get out of hydrogen. When you combine that to 12 hydrogen sensors, we think we're going to see something pretty interesting out of red when that is released. Like we said, that was just announced Tuesday, so it'll be a while, and there's no pricing yet, but uh, since it's red, it'll probably be a rental item for the most of us. Next up, we've got the mix from Roscoe Lighting and DMG Lumiere. So DMG Lumiere is a French-Canadian lighting company, and it got bought by Roscoe a while ago. Now, Roscoe makes lights, but they're probably best known for their color gels. That's like the signature Roscoe item. They don't want to, like, Roscoe, Tiffin, Gam, there's a few others, uh, are, like, the major filter manufacturers. I mean, major gel manufacturers. Roscoe, Tiffin, Gam, a few others, these are the major gel manufacturers out there that allow you to color your light. You've got a tungsten unit, you want it to be purple, you put a Roscoe uh, party gel that's purple up on there, and you get a better uh, purple color. Now... The DMG Lumiere units uh, have always been bicolor, but this collaboration between Roscoe and DMG, now that Roscoe owns DMG, are called the Mix, and they're actually built around six different color LED uh, sort of bulbs on the chip. And by mixing those six colors, you get like an infinite array of colors that you can choose from. And there's a couple really cool things about this. One, there's a white-only mode, which can be either daylight or tungsten balance, but what's nice about it is there's full green magenta control. So if you're in a situation, this happens all the time, you're shooting in a grocery store, they have overhead fluorescence, you can't afford to rebulb all of them, but you want to have some lighting units on the ground that you can light up your actors with, you can now use the white mode to match the quote-unquote white fluorescence, but you can dial the green or magenta of your floor lights, these Roscoe Mix, 
to match your overhead lights so that your light on your actors matches your overhead light, which makes your grade way easier as everything is sort of closer together. So if you're trying to take the green out of the fluorescence in your grade, you're not taking the green that should be there out of people's faces or clothing. Mm. Pardon me, John, you can cut that belch out. So that's super cool on its own. Beyond that, they also offer full RGB control for hue, saturation, and lightness. And there's a feature built into the app where you like take a photo with your phone, and then you can like point to a part of that photo, and then you can make the light match that color. Now, we haven't tested this yet. We've just seen the little demo in the video. If this works, it's going to be really cool. There's a lot of mystery here. Will that color then look correct on your camera to match the photo? Like if you're shooting your job on a red, but you take the snap with a iPhone, maybe not. But if you're shooting with an iPhone and you take the snap with an iPhone, maybe. And if you're shooting with like the new red hydrogen, you see how I circle that back around, and you take the snap with another hydrogen, maybe you can really dial in precisely the color you want with this. Um, it's really exciting to see all the innovation happening between this and a couple weeks ago, the Aperture RGB, where, where you've got a little color meter. There's a lot of cool stuff happening with light color at the moment. Last bit of tech news this week is an application. Um, it is called Image 2 LUT, and this is really interesting. What it lets you do is you can bring in a source image, and then you can profile it and create a LUT based on that, which is super cool. Now, What's especially cool about this is it's beyond just the basic entry-level tool. On top of its normal, like, I'm going to profile what this shot looks like, it allows you to control a couple things like contrast. You can protect skin tones. There's a protect skin tone slider. There's a contrast slider. And even more exciting, especially for filmmakers, not only can you then have a target image that you apply it to, you can export it as a LUT. It exports the common 3DL and .cube formats, which you can plug right into Lattice or Resolve or your LUT-capable monitor and then apply that look at the end. So if you have a director who brings in a reference image and it's like a Polaroid from the 1960s of their grandparents, you can scan that, build a LUT off of it, and plug that LUT into the monitor that the director's watching on set so they can see a preview of the kind of look and personality that's going to be happening for the final grade. Image to LUT. That is Image to Let. Check it out. All right. Next up is our Ask No Film School question. Initially, I was going to have John answer this, but then I thought about it, and I actually want to answer for John so that we can pay John a compliment. So the question comes, Nick Marquez asks, I've decided to ask about No Film School's setup for this reason. Of all podcasts I've listened to, hundreds ranging from Dungeons & Dragons to Financial Planning, no podcast sounds as clean, consistent, and professional as the No Film School podcast, in my opinion. What's the secret to the superior audio quality of the No Film School podcast? So I'm going to go over the technical stuff here in a second because I'm sure you want to know the technical stuff. But I have to say the number one secret is that John Fusco pays attention. Like, all the technology aside, we have a person in charge of our podcast who gives a fuck, who cares who wants it to be recorded cleanly, who pays attention to the way it's recorded cleanly, who will, if something is missed in the recording, will have us redo it, and then literally edits the podcast, cleans up the audio, takes that time. It's something that I've noticed is missing in some podcasts. Not all, but some don't take that time. And so the number one thing, I think, to get your podcast sounding as good as our podcast is to get John Fusco to do it. However, if you can't... Uh, our technical situation is this. 
We're recording right now on an iMac into Adobe Audition, and we're using a Focusrite Thunderbolt device. It is actually a Focusrite Claret 4 Pre, and it's just a little device that sits under the computer, plugs Thunderbolt in, and it takes XLR audio inputs. And so this is doing the analog, because XLR is analog, analog to digital conversion. It's a $500 device that's doing a much better analog to digital conversion than you're going to get out of your phone or your cheap little recorder. It's a $500 unit whose only job is to have four XLR ends and convert it to really nice digital signal. So it does a very good job. And then on top of that, we use Rode Broadcaster microphones. Um, they range, uh, you know, they're around $400 a piece. We've got four of them, so we can have four people talking at once. They're all on little Rode independent stands. They all have uh, little uh, pop guards, those little screens in front of the microphone. And there's another technical thing I should point out. So for those of you who don't know, if you ever listened to the Startup Podcast, that was a podcast about starting a podcasting company. The first couple seasons were. And when they started that podcast company, which went on to be named Gimlet, they actually were in our office. There's actually a, a sitcom now called Alex, Alex Inc. that I haven't watched, but it's about the starting of that podcasting company, Gimlet. And, you know, they're, they're in like a zany, creative Brooklyn workspace. So we work in that zany, creative Brooklyn workspace, um, the Metropolitan Exchange. And uh, it's probably not as zany as it is on the sitcom, but there's a whole lot of wonderful people here doing all sorts of cool different businesses. And there's science companies and startups and architecture and all sorts of great stuff. And we're in the old Gimlet booth. So this is something that a lot of people don't appreciate about podcasts. I've, I've recorded a lot of podcasts in a hotel room or, like, sitting around a folding table in a bedroom. But, like, a dedicated podcast booth is wonderful for a bunch of reasons. One, I look around and there's only one tiny little window, right? Because windows let through a lot of sound from the outside world. So, like, I'll hear it if someone walks by but it's not a tremendous thing. It appears to be a double-pane window. And then the rest of it is a very solid room. It was actually mostly built, dedicated to be a podcast booth. And then the inside of it is all lined with either fabric-wrapped boards or, like, foam egg crate-style material. So between all of that and the tiny little HVAC vent in the corner, the room itself is very dead. And that really helps. I also have to point out the building we're in is really old. One thing I have noticed is newer buildings often have thinner floors and thinner walls, and I've been in recording sessions where I can hear what's happening in the next booth. Now, some of that is the way the booth is built, but some of that, it just vibrates through the floor, whereas this is a 100-year-old building. They built buildings very solidly back then. Um, I seldom hear what is going on next door. And um, between that and then the great work Gimlet did originally building this sort of super amazing booth, and then the amazing work of John Fusco, that is how the No Film School podcast is able to sound like it does. I am sure somewhere in the No Film School archives we have an article on building your own podcast booth. If not, I will make sure we get one up sometime soon. Thank you very much for your question, and uh, thank you, John Fusco. Thank you, Charles. You are too kind. I just want to add uh, in a few things here because while – you talked a lot about um, what we have in the booth. A lot of our podcasts, I'd say, I mean, a half of them or more at this point are actually uh, recorded in the field. And they're recorded with, again, Rode reporter mics, which are 
slightly different than these broadcaster mics that we use in the booth. Uh, they're, of course, portable. Um, we hook that up to a Zoom F8, which has eight channels in it. Um, so we can get as many as eight guests on the show at one time. It's really small. It's really easy to carry around. One thing to uh, think about when you're recording audio out in the field is that it's never going to sound perfect. I think that that's a mistake that a lot of podcasts make is they try to clean the audio up to a point where it actually sounds worse. Um, the main thing you want to consider when thinking about your audience is they're going to be most taken out of the podcast if the background uh, noise actually sounds different uh, at any given point in a podcast. So as long as the background noise is actually there and it's consistent, it's just going to be that. It's going to be background noise, and it's not going to take the listener out of the conversation at all. What is going to take the listener out of the conversation is if you go into whatever audio software you're using and you try and put on a whole bunch of different filters to get rid of that background noise. It was something that I experimented with for the first, I don't know, five months of the podcast uh, and then decided, you know, it actually sounds worse. It sounds like we're in some sort of weird metallic tube um, and it's very time consuming and it's really just not worth it. One thing that we do do uh, to make the podcasts that we record in the field sound more professional is that a lot of times we'll actually record the intros and the outros in the booth so that you know that you're getting a professional uh, podcast and that we have you know the equipment necessary to produce something that sounds amazing and then that will lead into a consistent field recording that may not sound as good as the actual introduction, but it lets you know that you're listening to, again, a professional podcast. So again, the tech that we actually use are the Zoom F8 and Rode uh, Reporter microphones. It's also really funny that you're uh, asking this question today because we're getting a lot of background noise in the booth. I'll just shut up so you can hear it a little bit. I don't know if you can hear that, but it's like this low rumbling sound, and it sounds like a plane is consistently flying through our office right now, uh, and there's nothing that I'm really going to be able to do about it. But that being said, hopefully it's consistent enough where it won't be totally distracting for our audience, uh, for you guys, and uh, you think that the quality of this podcast is worthy of a listen. So yeah, thanks for your question, and to and there, there it goes. So the, you can actually see, like, when the background is in, when the background noise is inconsistent like that, that's what really takes the listener out of the podcast. It's not even really the quality of the podcast. It's that uh, interchanging of background noise and silence um, that is really the mark of a poorly produced podcast, um, in my opinion, at least. Anyways, back to what I was saying. We're about to uh, build a new podcast booth in our new offices in Bushwick, and maybe we can write an article chronicling our endeavors and what we use uh, in terms of tech and setup to hopefully make podcasts that sound as good as this one you're listening to right now. So thanks. And now on to some movies opening this week. On Amazon Prime Instant, you can check out Last Flag Flying on May 4th. This is Richard Linklater's latest movie and it's an oddly patriotic expedition for a director who's so well known for his counterculture themes 
For that reason, Last Flag Flying is a difficult film to process. Um, it tells the story of three former Marines, played by the always reliable Steve Carell, Brian Cranston, and Lawrence Fishburne, who fought in Vietnam and reunite on a road trip 30-odd years down the line to bury the son of Carell's character. The film takes place during the height of the Iraq War and the mid-O's, where the son has been killed in action. Quote, it's a lot of emotions and a lot of mixed feelings to say the least, Link later remarked after I saw a screening at NYFF last fall, New York Film Festival. He continued, I think a lot of people who serve in our military can be very patriotic, love their country, deeply believe that they're fighting for freedom, democracy, justice, that's the mission. And then you find out you're going to be screwed over by the institution in varying degrees, and I think we experience that through these characters. Still, Linklater wouldn't go so far as to call it a war movie, saying, quote, This doesn't really have the trappings of a war movie. We're not in battle. It's domestic. It's more of a road movie. It's probably in that genre. It just happens to be these vets in this particular situation. I don't necessarily agree with his sentiments here, but you should give it a watch so you can judge it for yourself and uh, let us know what you think. There is that one interesting scene where they listen to Eminem's Without Me in the car. That has stayed with me. Yeah. Just because, wow, they're listening to Eminem because they're proving that it's 2002, yeah. 2003. Yeah, they, they, they do a good job of, or he does a good job of bringing us back to that time frame for yeah. sure. The rest is kind of hammy. Yeah. yeah. But uh, who are we to judge? <laughs> You're right. Check it out. Uh, we also have to give a shout out to our loyal listener and super encouraging Twitter friend, Sean Michael Colon, whose documentary A Fat Wreck is now available on Amazon Prime. If you grew up in the 90s or the 2000s and listened to punk music, you've definitely come across bands that were part of the Fat Records family, like NoFX, Lagwagon, Propagandi, and so many more. And this film documents 25 years of the label, which is known for uh, you know musicians and awesome drug-snorting puppets. Wait, I just have to say, the label is the, not known the, the for drug-snorting puppets. For dr- <laughs> <But> <laughs> oh, sorry. But one of the creative ways that Sean and his team illustrate the 25-year history of this punk label uh, <laughs> in the movie is with awesome drug-snorting puppets. Oh, so it's, the company's not run by drug-snorting puppets. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I'm going to check this out. It's now available on Amazon Prime. Congrats, Sean. Uh, you've piqued my interest. Yeah, we're really happy for you, buddy. I'm stoked on the rest of this week's movie releases, too, because the next ones are all films I saw at different festivals throughout last year, and I've just been waiting for you all to get the chance to see them. I won't talk too much about this one, Faces Places, because I named it my favorite film of last year and have mentioned it a bunch on the show, but I'll say that it's finally coming to Netflix, and it involves French film legend Agnès Varda, street artist J.R., a series of mischief-making road trips, and lots of joy, although unfortunately no drug-snorting puppets. Anyway, just see it. And several great films are coming to theaters on May 4th. May the 4th be with you. Um... They're not Star Wars films, however. The first one is called Angels Wear White. It's a Chinese film that was nominated for a Golden Lion at the Venice Film Festival last year. It takes place in a small seaside town where two schoolgirls are sexually assaulted by a middle-aged man in a motel. And it follows Mia, a teenager who was working on reception that night, who also was the only witness to the crime. For fear of losing her job, she chooses to keep silent. It's directed by Chinese filmmaker Vivian Chu. And I saw this one before its premiere at TIFF last year, and I interviewed Vivian. I'll try to get it up on the site this week. Um, 
she was really interesting. And one not so fun fact is that it was the only film by a female filmmaker selected in competition at Venice last year, which was kind of especially cool since, in a way, this film is ultimately about female empowerment in China. Speaking of female empowerment, one of my favorite films out of Sundance this year is also coming to theaters on Friday. RBG, yes, that RBG, one Ruth Bader Ginsburg, has a first-ever documentary biopic on tap. If you already know and love the no-nonsense Supreme Court justice, you will still learn surprising things about her storied career and personal life. And if you don't, it's hard not to fall in love with her after watching this. Filmmakers Betsy West and my friend Julie Cohen, who has appeared on a No Film School interview podcast called How Niche Filmmaking Can Move Your Career Ahead, have woven together archival news interview and unprecedented verite footage of Ginsburg that I think celebrates the best of what American justice has to offer. I interviewed the filmmakers back at Sundance, and one of the most amazing BTS stories is that they didn't actually know at the beginning whether they would ever be able to get an interview with Ginsburg herself. So they started to build the film, you know, assuming they might not speak with her. They reached out to her, and first of all, she's elderly, and so her time is protected, and they also just don't know how much time she has, you know, left in the world. But secondly, she has a very specific schedule with Supreme Court hearings. Yes, she's still working at age 85. So she said, I could schedule an interview with you in two years. They were like, two years? But they proceeded anyway, and exactly two years later, when the film was almost done, they finally got the interview with her and were able to cut it in. And finally, Jason Reitman, who did Up in the Air and Thank You for Smoking, has a new film coming to theaters on Friday called Tully. This is the third film in his ongoing collaboration with writer Diablo Cody, who penned Reitman's Juno in 2007 and Young Adult in 2012. Like young adult, Tully stars Charlize Theron, this time as a spread-tooth-thin mother of three who's barely hanging on to sanity until she finds a surprising savior in a free-spirited young nanny, the titular Tully, played by Mackenzie Davis. Like Reitman's other films, Tully is a relatable and touching comedic drama that kind of sneaks up on you by infusing a seemingly lighter topic with real emotion. And this one also has a major plot twist that I, for one, did not see coming. I saw Reitman on stage at Tribeca in an extended conversation with filmmaker Tamara Jenkins, and I'll be posting the takeaways on the site this week. Is this movie anything like Mary Poppins? That's a, it's an interesting question. I'm pausing because it's like, I mean, if Mary Poppins was into threesomes. Hmm. I've heard rumors. Is that, is, is <laughs> is that, that movie coming out? <laughs> <laughs> That's the twist. Mary's Tully. popping something. Oh. oh. Or someone's popping Mary. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> Reel them in, Liz. Reel them in. <laughs> this episode is out of control. Um, all right, guys. What have you got for us? I was just going to ask before we move on. Do you want to say anything about spring now? That's we only talk about the cold. It's weather. finally hit we only spring. Talk about freezing. You can you know, say I it. I purposely haven't said anything about, <laughs> about the, the weather, weather because week. you guys always tease me about it. It's well, Indie Film Weekly, we got to report on. You know, yeah, it changes. Indie Film Weekly weather I have situation. WW. I have WWW. Oh, or, yeah. Or, yeah um, you guys, it's so nice out. Thank God. There's flowers. I can't even handle it. It rained so much last month. If we don't get a ton of flowers this month, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to think all sayings are wrong. Great. Cool. Thanks, John, for giving me my moment. Next segment. Moving on to deadlines for grants and other events. The Meerkat Media Residency has a deadline on May 7th. The Meerkats in residence aren't actual Meerkats, but they are people, and they are a dedicated group of independent artists that are actively working on projects. 
individually or collaboratively, and are supported by the collective resources based in their workspace in Sunset Park, Brooklyn. John, just say what they actually are, a collective of drug-snorting puppets. So they're not meerkats, and we talked about a documentary that's not about drug-snorting puppets. Like, what, what is the truth in advertising? Sorry to interrupt. So these residents provide mutual aid for one another's projects and artistic development, receive a monetary stipend determined through an annual budgeting process, have access to production and post-production equipment, and attend an annual creative retreat. Sounds nice. On May 8th, there's a deadline for the Jerome Foundation Artist Fellowship. If you're a filmmaker located in Minnesota or the five boroughs of New York City, you could be one of 10 grant recipients in the media category to get up to $30,000 in the first round of their new Artist Fellowship program. These are flexible two-year grants to support the creative development of early career-generative artists, and artists may apply individually or together with other members of ongoing collectives or ensembles. You know, we read this every year, and it's just still so strange to me. I haven't done any research why it's the five boroughs of New York City and Minnesota. And Minnesota the state of Minnesota. <laughs> yeah, I think because, you know, Jerome is from there. Is that what it is? Yeah, oh, I mean, okay, it usually okay, is. Okay. Honestly, yeah. it usually is with yeah. these grants. There's, like, some local interest by the grantor in that area. So moving on to festival deadlines, just a witch's hop from Minnesota you guys ever heard that term before? Witches hop. Yeah. Wow. Well, they fly on brooms? I I don't know, actually. I've heard of a witch hunt, which apparently is, you know, they're after you, John. The Toronto International Film Festival, a big one, has their regular deadline on May 4th. Of course, this takes place in Toronto, Canada from September 6th to the 16th, 2018. It's celebrating its 43rd year in 2018, and if you don't know it, it is clearly one of the leading public film festivals in the world, screening more than 300 films from over 60 countries every September. The festival welcomed over 450,000 attendees last year, and it is immensely successful both locally, where it takes over the city for 11 days, and internationally as a must-attend destination. The Citizen Jane Festival has a deadline on May 8th. This is the late deadline. It takes place November 1st through the 4th, 2018 in Columbia, Missouri. The fest is female-centric and aims to support independent film by independent women. All the ladies independent submit to this fest. It's pretty good. It's a good Destiny's Child reference. As such, all submissions must be directed or co-directed by a woman. It is one of the top 100 best-reviewed festivals on Film Freeway. And this week for our weekly words of wisdom comes from an interview that Emily did with Kent Jones, who was the director of Diane, which premiered at Tribeca and won, I believe, the top narrative prize. Uh, he, Kent Jones is also, of course, the head of the New York Film Festival that takes place in the fall. This is his narrative directorial debut. And Emily had sat down with him, and she asked an interesting question about because he is a journalist and film critic by trade as well. Did you feel somewhat uniquely prepared to engage with actors based on your extent of cinephile education? That's a very Emily question. Yeah, that's pretty good. Uh, I just don't even get the correlation, though. I mean, sorry, I, I guess I'll find out now, but oh. I don't understand where that even came from. Well, I'm about to drop some words of wisdom from, from my buddy Kent. Uh <laughs> He said, that's a really interesting question, agreeing with us. Um, My cinephile education is a self-education that started when I was a kid. I've been thinking a lot lately about the fact that getting interested in movies attuned me to the behavior around me, and being attuned to the behavior around me attuned me to movies. It was sort of hand-in-hand thing. 
My father was older than my mother. He came out of World War II, so that was older movies. Bogart was very important to me when I was younger. My mom grew up in the 70s, so she loved Altman and stuff like that. I really became tuned into the differences between actors and movies in different eras. When I started reading and writing film criticism, I realized that acting is a blind spot in a lot of criticism. I don't read a lot now, but I think a lot of the criticism that I read, the major exception being Manny Farber and Pauline Kael, people would talk about acting in terms of iconography. They would talk about it in terms of how people looked visually within the shot or in very general terms. But the way that acting worked in relation to the cinema, actors bring much more than the cinephile world gives them credit for. Um, it does kind of show that, like, I feel like a lot of writers and maybe, you know, filmmakers when they kind of start off when working with actors are a little afraid to kind of describe performances and acting because it can be difficult in like what are the right kind of words that we're placing with it and how how much is too much directing a performance versus other kind of feedback to give actors on set too so i feel like it's kind of a mis you know mystified kind of world sometimes for film people to discuss acting and really breaking that down it's interesting that you bring this up this week because Ryan and I just had a whole podcast about like exactly this, like how to work with your actors on set. And that's going to be the next episode of the first feature on Wednesday. Wednesday, right? Mm -hmm. I think directors are as much at fault sometimes as critics for using actors as iconography rather than actually like allowing them into the collaborative creative experience. And I think that's just like a hallmark of a uh, a poor set, um, and that's something that we'll probably get into on Wednesday. So listen to that podcast. Meanwhile, next Tuesday, the 2018 Cannes Film Festival will begin, and it runs through Saturday, May 19th. A new film from two-time Oscar-winning Iranian director Asghar Farhadi will open the festival. It's a psychological thriller called Everybody Knows, starring Javier Bardem and Penelope Cruz. And Australian actress Kate Blanchett will head up the jury for Cannes this year. Showing the international nature of the festival, I looked this up. There are 21 films competing for the Palme d'Or Top Festival Prize this year, which seems like a lot. Um, and they hail from 16 different countries. So of 21 films, 16 different countries. Pretty good, uh, pretty good distribution there. We've reported on some of the controversies around the festival regarding what does or doesn't qualify as a competition film. But when it comes down to it, this is still one of the major global celebrations of cinema. And that should outshine most of the more minor stuff. We will report on any major happenings here over the next couple weeks. So listen out for some for some Francais. Wait, I'm, I'm going next year, right? Yeah. That's, I think I'm going to go next year. Just go? I think yeah. we were waiting in the airport to go to Berlin, remember, a few right. months ago. And it never happened. <laughs> yeah. So I think you can redeem the flight to go to you know, we sent Emily the last two years, and uh, we're she, not sending anybody this year. But yeah, maybe next year. Maybe because we didn't send anyone this year, we'll both go. We'll all go next year. I mean, it just makes sense. Sort of, or it doesn't really make that much sense. <laughs> we could record the podcast on a yacht in French. Yeah, in French. Yeah. You know, you know what? If you learn French by next spring, yeah. you can go, John. We. Oh, no, you. We. Oh, we'll learn like Quebec French. Ooh, Quebec my French teacher in high school was Quebecois. Ah, okay. Monsieur. I think they look down on that in, in France proper, right? Yeah, they do, but he was adorable. Okay, then I love him. One more thing. Uh, another small movie that's opening at Cannes uh, is this movie called Solo, a Star Wars story. And oh, May the fourth be with you. I don't really talk to this guy anymore, but I gotta just like 
wish him like good luck with this because it is fucking scary to be put in the position that he's been in and he's been taking a lot of heat. Oh really? Well, oh, I yeah. know what you're talking about, but I'm not sure our listeners do. So. Oh yeah, I mean. No, but I'm, I mean, tell us, tell us who you're talking about. Well, I'm talking about Alden Ehrenreich, who I was, in, I went to college with. Yeah, like I like just thinking about the responsibility that this dude has. Like we again, we're like not playing in touch solo anymore. in solo. So he's playing the young Han Solo, yeah, which is playing, like a big deal. And and there's been you know like on set sort of uh, catastrophes with. Um, what are their names? The, uh, the Lego the, movie guys, Yeah, the right? Lego. Uh, Phil Lord and Christopher Miller, who I really like uh, and wish that I could have seen that movie. Um, but, like, they, people have talked about how, you know, he's – they had to bring an acting coach on for, like, for, for Alden um, and how, like, a lot of the problems actually started or stemmed with him in that lead role. Um, so I'm just hoping that, like, you know – I have my own thoughts about him and the movie, but I just hope that like it doesn't end his career. <laughs> yeah. So Good that's luck, that's Alden. my that's my wish well, okay. to Alden. You got Ron Howard and, and Bradford Young shooting it. It could be Bradford Young. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, he's oh, he's so good. Oh, that's yeah. cool. That's very cool. That, yeah. that gives he's got a great cast around him. Yeah. Great supporting team, and uh, apparently it was revealed that he signed on for three. Oh Star God. Wars movies, so oh. it's being built up for success. Oh boy! Um, All I know is it should have been you. <laughs> I don't have the hair. No. John Solo. Oh, I, I had no. I look forward to seeing it. I didn't realize it was a Star Wars film. I thought it was just a one-man movie about <laughs> oh, no. about just uh, where he just talks for an hour and a half. It's That's a monologue. literally the worst joke I've ever heard. Good night, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> Eric, you don't even get to sign off. Get out of here. Yeah. Bye bye. Um, but before you leave, next Monday's podcast features a pretty gripping conversation I had just last week with three directors who had films at Tribeca, all three of which are also playing at Hot Docs this week. So each of the directors, Nancy Schwartzman, Cynthia Lowen, and Asia Bundawi, has taken on one of the most controversial issues of the day and turned it into something very watchable, even while putting themselves at personal risk. So listening to some of their behind-the-scenes stories is like a great documentary in and of itself. I'm pretty excited about this one, so check that out on Monday. And, of course, if you're still with us... Between all the weird jokes and loud noises outside and drug-snorting puppets, we thank you. And uh, we hope that you'll, you'll rate the podcast on iTunes, subscribe if you haven't on iTunes or Stitcher or any of your, pod, your favorite podcast apps. And, of course, you can read about everything we talked about in this week's show. We will link to it in the podcast post at nofilmschool.com, where you can also find articles every single day about the craft of filmmaking. Shy. I'll take this moment to apologize if I've ever offended anyone. <laughs> Even me? Uh, no. Mm. No apologies there. But See? Uh, I don't... See, guys? I don't know what I've done to offend, but I apologize. Oh, that's nice, John. Uh, we hope that you'll stay in touch with John on Twitter and send him, you know, your... your... Don't talk behind my back. Say it to my face. Mm. Yeah. That's, that's all I gotta say. Say it to his face on Twitter. Yeah. At... No. What? <laughs> Jim underscore John underscore. In honor of Ken, I'm gonna follow that up with a Jim Jean Jim. Pretty good. It's like Jules and Jim, but it's yeah. It's oh, Jules and Jim. Yes. Yeah. Who are you on Twitter, Eric? I'm, I'm Kermit the Cokehead. That, uh, <laughs> I am at Eric Lures, and I am going to watch Fat Wreck tonight. <laughs> I'm at Liz Film. We're all at No Film School, and we will. See you next week. May the 4th be with you.